And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. And welcome to Wednesday. The final Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth of this year, because we're about to take a couple of weeks off. But Bruce is, well, he's way out there today. He's not in Ottawa. He's getting, he's breathing in the real air. He's out in beautiful British Columbia. He's in Vancouver today. Uh, I'm in uh, Stratford, Stratford, Ontario. So we're crossing the country today. Now, here's where I want to start, because it's one of those classic days in the news business you sort of pick what you want you know if you're a consumer of news and you lean one way or the other politically there's something for everybody today on the one hand you've got a new poll from Leger being reported and it talks about how the conservatives are ahead by a couple of points it's close but they're ahead that's the banner conservatives lead and then you have just across the way in the uh in the news business, you have the report still of the Monday night by-election in the uh, 905 area, one of the Mississauga ridings, where the liberals didn't just win. They crushed the conservatives. Now, it's been a liberal-held riding since 2015, but still, new conservative leader, tough times out in the country, like really tough times. Maybe not in Mississauga, I don't know. But they won by 20 points, 15 points. They won by a lot of points. And it's very rare in a hotly contested riding where there are lots of different candidates running for one candidate to get more than half the votes, more than 50%. But the liberal, well-known, Charles Souza, former provincial finance minister, won 51 point something percent of the vote. That's unusual for that to happen, but it did happen. And it was a crushing of the conservatives, and it has to be tough for Pierre Polyev to swallow. Your take, sir, on uh, those conflicting headlines. What uh, what are we supposed to believe? Well, on the, um, on the national polling data, Peter, I think the thing that um, I always feel is important to remind readers of polls, national polls is um, the races that are hard to discern and important in terms of the number of seats are in BC, Ontario and Quebec. In Quebec, the race between the Liberals and the BQ is a really important race. And so understanding those dynamics is always critical to understanding whether the Liberals fortunes are flagging or are strong. In BC, it's a three way fight. And in Ontario, uh, the race between the Liberals and the Conservatives uh, really tells the tale. So we do see polls that show the Conservatives ahead nationally, uh, and they did win the popular vote, I think, in the last two elections, uh, but they didn't win the, the largest number of seats. So um, I think the Liberals would be well advised to think that the Conservatives uh, have a bit of an upper hand heading into the next election just because there's fatigue with the government. Uh, it's not that much stronger than it has been, so I wouldn't want to overstate it. But 
that takes me to the place to, to, to the question about what normally happens in a by-election. In a by-election where an incumbent government has been in office for this long a period of time with difficult economic conditions, it would be more normal to expect um, there to be a kind of a turnout uh, that favored the, uh, the challenging party, uh, the conservatives in this case. That didn't happen. What did happen in the by-election, I think, is a number of things. The most important one, I think, to, to reflect on, you said crushed, and I think that's right. Uh, but it's crushed among the, I think it was about a quarter of the eligible voters who turned out. I was looking for yeah. the turnout numbers yeah, this morning. The pathetic turnout rate, 25 26%. The last 26%, right? So we're talking about a 3,000-vote margin uh in a riding where I think there was probably 86,000 eligible voters. Uh, so very, very many of those voters didn't turn out. Now that in and of itself tells us something. It tells us that uh, liberal supporters didn't necessarily feel motivated to go out and cast a ballot to um, to show their support for the government. Maybe they didn't think that there was much uh, risk uh, of the liberals losing that seat. Maybe they thought even if the liberals lose that seat, it doesn't really matter because they're still going to be in government. All of those things could have contributed to that. But uh, just as you and Chantal and I were talking about this last time, this is going to be more informative for the losers, uh, the parties that didn't do well in this in this by-election. And there were two, uh, the NDP and the Conservatives. And we should talk about both of those, because I think that it is fair to say, and the Liberals have been saying it, over and over and over again, as you can imagine, since the by-election result, that Pierre Polyev has been asking voters to send a message to Ottawa. Um, and they did, in the sense that they didn't turn out and vote for Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. Uh, in the numbers that one might have expected, uh, given all of the things that Pierre Polyev says is are broken in Canada, and the NDP uh, saw their vote uh, cut significantly. Um, and that's also something that uh, you, you'd have to look at if you were an NDP supporter, if you were in Jagmeet Singh's office, Jagmeet Singh's office, and, and say that didn't work out. You know the the liberal vote. I'm not sure if you just mentioned this or not. I had, I was just checking something online, but the liberal vote actually went up. The percentage of their vote went up from the last time round, which is you know tells you a story. Um, I mean, I I heard from uh, one of my conservative friends who uh, lives in that riding who uh, really wanted uh, their guy to win. Uh, but he was he was pretty upset about the kind of campaign, the kind of strategy the Conservatives were using there. Um, the candidate uh, didn't turn up for, uh, for all candidate meetings and debates. Whether that was by design or not, I don't know whether it was instructed of him not to turn up at these uh, by Party Central. I know they've done that in the past. In past elections, they've told their candidates to stay clear of those things. There were no, you know, there were no big media interviews locally nor nationally. The media strategy of Pierre Polyev, which we've talked about before, uh, may be in need of a rethink. Um, yeah, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think the, you know they're they're trying to say now that uh, the conservatives are trying to say, well, you know, we never expected to win. This is a liberal held riding for a long time. Blah blah blah. All the you know the, all the kind of excuses you expect to hear after a loss. Um, but one has got to assume they're rethinking the strategy they use locally and nationally leading up to this campaign. I think they campaigned 
so that when they lost and they probably assumed that they were going to lose, that they could say, in effect, they didn't try very hard. You know, they didn't have uh, the leader and a bunch of kind of luminaries uh, spending a lot of time in the riding. And that sometimes happens when politicians don't want the stain of a defeat to to be on them. Um, they don't show up. But I think that given that it was the first kind of high-profile test for Pierre Polyev of this sort, it probably would have been better for him to have uh, to have been more visible, to have made his case a little bit more uh, directly to the people. I think that there's something to be said for the the idea that conservatives are narrow casting their message, not using mainstream media very much, uh, reaching out to their base using the the tools and the techniques and the channels that are efficient at reaching the base. But if that's true, and I think it is mostly true. Uh, it didn't do very much uh, to get people turned out in the context of a period of time when if you looked at Polyev's leadership race, you would say, well, a lot of conservatives went to meetings uh, to help elect him as leader. Remember the the stories of the enthusiasm, the grassroots kind of outpouring, right? Well, that was just this year. That wasn't three years ago. That was this year. And so a couple of other things have occurred to me. One is that in the course of his leadership race, he tapped into a lot of anger with vaccine mandates and uh, this idea that the convoy being a, a cry for freedom against a, a gatekeeping government and institutions that were limiting the freedom of people. It didn't look to me like very many people went out to vote for freedom or to express their support for the convoy or to voice their discomfort with vaccine mandates at all. Um, and it didn't look like that was really part of the campaign either. So the 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 fuel that got Pierre Polyev to the leadership, to Stornoway, doesn't look to me like it has much potential to help him going forward. He's going to need something else. And the something else that we were starting to see as an argument was this, everything is broken in Canada. And I can tell you, based on my experience in polling, is that if you are a politician and you say, here are five things that are broken, and people say, yeah, all five of those are broken and we need to fix them, that's one thing. That's going to work. But if you say everything is broken in Canada, and we've got a population, 70% of which would say on any given day, any year that I've been doing polling, would say this is one of the best places in the world to live. There's a disconnect there. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that Pierre Polyev needs to figure out as he thinks about how he's going to campaign going forward. Uh, last thing that occurred to me as well, I was reading some of the uh, something about the work that uh, Charles Souza had been doing in that riding. And one of the signature initiatives that he was involved in was creating this kind of green waterfront in Mississauga and a large piece of land that used to be a coal uh, power plant. Very popular initiative, I understand. Um, and I couldn't help but think that the contrast of that with the debate about Doug Ford and the Greenbelt going on at the same time wasn't a helpful thing for the conservative candidate. And I think the Doug Ford uh, shadow is a question that the federal conservatives need to think about now, because, well, he did win 
uh, a majority in the last provincial election. He's also not that popular right now in his plan with respect to the, the green belt and uh, and uh, letting developers build homes on it is controversial, as we've uh, been discussing. I should probably add that um, while Polyev uses that line, everything in Canada is broken, there's an extra part of the line, which is, and it's all because of Justin Trudeau. He's responsible for everything that's broken. Um, so both ends of that are going to be tough to sell. And yes. he, he may be rethinking it. I, you know, I don't know. Obviously, some of that is what happens in a campaign. You blame the, uh, the, the current government for, for things that aren't working well. But everything? that may, <laughs> Well, that, it's a line you use if you want the People's Party-type conservative to come out to a meeting. They want to hear that. They want to hear the vitriol against Justin Trudeau. But time after time after time, if you look at the broader polling data, you find, well, you know, there's about 31% who really don't like Justin Trudeau. But it's 31%. It's not 41. It's not 51. And it's been kind of stable uh, in the last, I'm going to say, year anyway. It went up a little bit. But um it's not a fast moving train politically for the conservatives to just focus on that. And I think this is a kind of the question that Polyev has uh, and it's relative. It, there, there's a parallel in the U S which is that Republicans can't win with too much Trumpism in their message and they can't win primaries uh, without it. And here, I think Polyev knows that um, nodding towards the anti-vax movement, but really trumpeting this kind of strong negative view of, of Justin Trudeau is critical to keeping those People's Party voters motivated and on side, but it doesn't do much for a lot of other people. And I think if I'm him, I'm kind of wondering, <coughs> pardon me, where were those voters uh, on the by-election night? Well, only um, the People's Party only attracted uh, 1% or just over 1% of the vote. Which, you know, is what it is. You know, maybe maybe other People's Party voters did, in fact, vote for the Conservatives. I'm didn't sure help, they did. Didn't help sure in the long did. run. But let, sure let me, Just not enough, right? It doesn't grow right. very much right now. Right. Let me ask you, um, uh, just as a last point on, on the by-election night, uh, this question, which is, it's, it kind of relates to that conversation I had with my Conservative friend in that riding, uh, who said to me, Peter, listen, you know, if we're going to win the next election, this is exactly the kind of riding we got to win. We have to win this riding, um, just like Stephen Harper did in 2011, and which helped form the basis of his majority government. It sure it is a you know uh, held by the liberal has been held by the liberals more than the conservatives over time, but at a at a point where votes are moving. Um, because of dissatisfaction with the government in power, um, they've got to be moving to the Conservatives. So the Conservatives are going to win overall. It's going back to your point about BC, Ontario, and Quebec being the kind of uh, the regions that are going to make a difference on a night like that. Um, so when he says, this is exactly the kind of riding we got to win, and you don't understand how disappointed I am that we came up so flat. Yeah, I think that... that- you know, for the conservatives, they can and will use the line that a lot of 
uh, parties use in this situation, which is, well, no, people didn't really expect us to win this. And, you know, so we're not that surprised. And let's not let's not use it to kind of analyze the broader uh, context. Uh, Fair enough. But um, you do have this this reality, which is that for the conservatives to get past the liberals in terms of the number of seats, they need to win seats that liberals have won. Um, and especially in areas where conservatives have won before, as you say. So not doing better in this. I mean, I think that a more rational analysis would say that it was a high-profile and popular candidate, uh, that the level of animus towards the federal government wasn't that strong, and that conservatives didn't make much of an effort. Um, Will they make a better effort going forward. I think that's the questions probably on the minds of conservatives like your friend um, who are wondering which Pierre Polyev are we going to get? Are we going to get the guy who doesn't actually go into the lion's den and duke it out? Probably not, but it was surprising to me that he didn't show more in this, in this race. Are we going to get the guy who takes an issue like healthcare and starts talking about very practical alternatives, like um, letting people who are trained in medicine somewhere other than Canada, but who live here now, um, get to practice more quickly. It's a practical idea, and he's not the only one who's championing it, but it's the kind of thing that will make people pay attention to an alternative to the government. Um, More so than... uh, you know, the awkwardness of the cryptocurrency position that he took and firing the Bank of Canada governor and those kinds of things don't sound like a stabilizing influence for people who are saying the world's unstable. We need a stabilizing influence. And I think for for a lot of conservatives I talk to, there is a feeling that conservative has somehow morphed from being a the, the idea of a stabilizing force against a, a, a too uh, change-oriented uh, progressive government. Um, has It's morphed into, uh, if, if you think they changed a lot of things, give us a chance, we'll change even more than you can imagine. And I think when people in Canada look at that, they go, uh, is there another conservative version that doesn't feel as... Uh, as stressful, and I think the the republicanism that we see in the states is part of why um, why it makes people a little bit hesitant. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the NDP because it was a bad night for them as well. It's interesting, you know, the the liberals have taken a lot of hits over the uh, over the last couple of years, and the polls continue to show that. Um, that they're you know they're running in second place but they're sort of within you know within close range of the conservatives but nevertheless they they are the party that's taken the most hits over the last um, uh, the last couple of years um but they seem to be on a bit of a you know a streak of of good news it's not necessarily reflected yet in in uh, the opinion polls but it certainly was reflected on monday night in the by-election uh but it's not good times for the NDP, and we'll talk about that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Wednesday edition, Smoke, Mirrors, No Truth, with Bruce Anderson, who is in Vancouver, 
today. Um, you're listening on SiriusXM Channel 167 Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform or because it's Wednesday like Friday you can also watch us on our YouTube channel and you can get the link for that by looking at my bio on uh, Twitter or Instagram all right uh, I promised some discussion about the uh, NDP because Jagmeet Singh is making threats about pulling the plug on uh, on the agreement they have to keep basically the liberals in power Um, and the issue for him is health care and that there is not a significant uh, movement happening on that front between uh, Ottawa and the provinces. Uh, and uh, so he's saying, you know what? That, I said I wanted certain things and that's one of the things I wanted. And if they don't happen, I'm going to pull the plug. And uh, there will be no guarantee of support for, uh, for the Liberals and it could end up forcing an election, which I don't think anybody really wants right now and certainly not the NDP after coming up with a resounding five or six percent in the uh, the polls on the by-election campaign so it's been uh, you know not not a good situation for them uh, of late but nevertheless the threat is there and I gotta say you know we made the threat and it sort of uh, people yawned for the most part um, is there what, what do you think is there something in that threat, or is that just the kind of threat you use every once in a while? Well, you know, like a number of things that we talk about, Peter, this reminds me of, of your golf game. The, uh, <laughs> you know, I get letters saying, Mansbridge, quit talking about your golf game. And I say, I don't talk about my golf game. There's nothing yeah. to talk about in my golf game. We don't talk about it. I'm just scarred watching it all these years. So I have to, it's therapy for me to talk it out a little bit, right? But what I was going to say is that, if you're Jagmeet Singh in this situation, you've got this supply arrangement with the government, supply and confidence arrangement, and, um, you know, that a lot of your party members and supporters have thought that that was probably a pretty good thing to do on the whole, it, as long as the Liberals were embracing the progressive kind of policy mix that you wanted them to. Um, but the challenge is uh, you don't, it's hard to get share of voice if you're the NDP leader, basically because nobody thinks that you're going to have anything material to say. Uh, You're not in charge of anything. Uh, You're not putting anything at risk. And so back to your golf game is like when things don't work for you that well in your golf game, I know that you only do one thing. You pull that four iron out of the golf bag. That's literally the only club that you pull out when things are going wrong and you use only that club. This is literally the only thing that Jagmeet Singh can do is to talk about whether or not he would pull the plug on that relationship. It is his four iron, his his version of your four iron. He has no choice but to every once in a while say, you know, this uh, this magic carpet ride liberals that you've been on with me, you know, it might come to an end. Uh, and what happens? People pay attention. We start talking about it. Uh, It's a conversation starter. It's a share of voice creator. It's him getting some sense of uh, rhythm back into his political swing, if you like. And so I look at it first and foremost that way. Um, But I also feel like uh, it's not going to be very real in the sense of 
he sees the numbers that we see. He saw the result that we saw. He knows that most progressive voters are looking at the liberal government and saying, we don't like everything that we're that they're doing, but uh, we sure don't want an election if there's a chance that the conservative party will win. And there is a chance that the conservative party will win. So it's a bit of a hollow threat. It's an effort to try to get some share of voice. It's an effort to stabilize his uh, his political pitch, but um, and it's also not unhelpful for the liberals. I mean, I think that you know it's possible for us to look at this and say, "Well, this must really kind of unnerve the liberals." But in a different way, it it helps them to have Jagmeet Singh saying the kinds of things that allow Justin Trudeau to say. I'm going to take a hard line with the premiers on this. We're going to need some uh, some strings attached to a major increase in funding because the healthcare system needs better results, and so it's 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 friendly in a way, even though I don't think it was necessarily intended to be friendly to liberals. Do you think the liberals really care one way or the other if if they pull the plug on this and we end up in an election? I do. I do. I think that for the Liberals, the last election was was a lesson in not meandering your way into an election without a real sense of purpose and a plan and uh, all of the preparation that they had done in prior elections. And I think that, you know, the ministers in the government are are working pretty hard at those mandate letter items. So the machinery of government is not organized for um, towards any kind of a near-term election. People are pretty focused on trying to move the yardsticks on the things that the prime minister has set out for them to do. And I don't get any sense that the political apparatus is is kind of looking at the moment in time and saying, there's an opportunity if we had an election here that we could win based on fill in the blank. I don't know what fills in the blank right now. So, So no, I don't think the liberals think it's much of a threat but I also don't think they want an election. Let me move it to um, the premiers uh, that we've uh, mentioned here. Is there, um, I mean, it certainly appears that there's a big gang up taking place on on the part of a a lot of the premiers on this healthcare issue, and they want Trudeau at the table, and they want to see uh, him open up the the money line. Um, What is, how do you read that? situation in in terms of uh, the influence they have on on trying to change the prime minister's mind on opening up the taps a bit uh, without all kinds of conditions um, and how united are they as a group I mean we've seen them before uh, try to uh, use a united front against uh, against Trudeau especially and it's usually been the conservative premiers um, they've lost when they've tried uh, on that front because it went to the courts. How do you see this current situation? Yeah, I don't think the premiers are very well positioned. I think that the um, the situation, as Canadians see it, is that the healthcare system is under tremendous strain, is underperforming. And you got the premier saying, give us more money, and the prime minister saying, we need better results. Now, if that's all that voters hear about that, they're going to go... Uh, results. That's what we want. We care more about results than we care about this flow of money and which, you know, government is 
uh, helping which other government, how much. And the Globe and Mail did an interesting um, op-ed or an editorial today on this. The argument, it was about the argument that the premiers are making about whether the federal government is paying as much of a share as it used to. And and they made the point that the premiers are misleading uh, people about this. But even if you accept that there's room for uh, debate about which government has been paying as much as it should. Uh, at the end of the day, most people know that the healthcare system is a matter of provincial jurisdiction and the provincial governments can raise taxes to spend more money on healthcare. They can control the things that affect the delivery of healthcare services to the people in their province. And if the healthcare system's going badly, they're gonna think that that's really on the province uh, to solve. And just saying, well, we don't get enough money from Ottawa, I don't think is is going to resonate that well uh, with those voters, particularly in in BC and in Ontario. Whereas I do think for the prime minister to say, well, we're open to the idea of more money, but we do need to see that that money is going to produce better results. That's especially uh, relevant in Ontario, where a lot of money uh, was moved to the provinces during COVID. And I think people are generally aware that a lot of it wasn't spent. A lot of it wasn't used for what it was intended uh, for. And that where governments, you know, that where the provincial governments have some fiscal room, uh, but aren't doing anything with that fiscal room to significantly improve the healthcare system, um, that's going to rebound against the provincial premiers. So I don't think they're in very strong shape at all. And I don't think we're going to see that strong united uh, front effort against Ottawa. Do you think... Do you think we could possibly see, because I, you know, like, I miss it, but I'm old school and, uh, you know, I'm looking at it from a, a media point of view. But do you think we uh, were ever going to see uh, in the short term on this issue uh, a situation where all the first ministers are sitting down? You know, the premiers, the territorial leaders, the prime minister um, at a conference table, you know, the old one in Ottawa worked pretty well in the good old days. Um, and hammering this thing out I hope because so. it's it's supposedly the number one issue on the minds of Canadians. When you look at the data and yours as well, healthcare and the situation in 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 hospitals across the country uh, is number one on the minds of uh, you know a lot of Canadians. Um, and so one would assume that this is important enough that okay, if you've got an argument on this, let's hear it. And let's see you make it, not behind closed doors, not in emails or telegrams or whatever, but right there, face-to-face, let's see it play out. I think it would be good. I think that it would be really useful for people to hear the stated positions and the arguments that the premiers and the prime minister make about this, and really useful for people to see them trying to drive towards a solution or a set of solutions that they agree on. I don't think it's very likely because I think that the premiers will see a reason why it's an awkward conversation for them to participate in. They might not all agree on the things that they want. It might kind of, it it might illuminate the fact that the prime minister is faced not with a group of premiers who all want the same thing and all agree on what the problem is and all commit to spending the money to do things that will improve health services, but rather that it's a bit of a cacophony. It's different stories from different provinces asking for different things and and um, 
And will it help the prime minister uh, to have people see that cacophony? Not necessarily. I think people will will kind of observe something if it if it did happen like that and say our system is messed up and it's not working on this public service that is the most important one to us, the healthcare system. Uh, so I, I, I like the idea, but I don't think it's going to happen. I do think we, you know, the prime minister is right to um, draw a line in the sand here and say, uh, we can't just write a, a check and have no expectation of improvement in the delivery of health services. It's, is still a, a matter for provincial responsibility, but it is the money that taxpayers sent to us. And we feel like we have some responsibility to try to use that leverage. All right. Uh, here's the, uh, here's the last topic for today. And it plays off of something that you've often um, said to me and said to our listeners, and it's about campaign financing. Um, the Americans have a guy in custody in a jail in the Bahamas, I don't know what it said, DF or SMB or whatever his name is. I I, I can't remember, but it's all involved in the crypto uh, business and the billions of dollars um, that the Americans claim uh, he raised under fraudulent circumstances and they want him behind bars. Um, When you peel back the story, a lot of that money was going to campaigns, both Democratic and Republican. Um. And in, in the U.S. And we're not talking about $1,000 here. We're talking about millions of dollars, billions of dollars that went into campaign coffers for different candidates, different parties across the U.S. Um, the argument you've always made is that thanks to the rules that all the parties agreed to in Canada, uh, that can't happen here. Is that true? It is true. Yeah. Uh, corporations can't really give money uh, in politics in Canada. Uh, very, very limited in what they can give, and that didn't used to be the case. It, I don't think it was the case that, at least in in our lifetimes, that that corporations were giving massive, massive amounts of money. But um, certainly, significant chunks of money would be raised through corporate fundraising, and that's not really um, the case anymore. Um, the other side of the question is what could politicians do with the money if they could get it? And local riding campaigns can't spend very much. So, you know, you compare um, the amount that a politician could spend in a riding like uh, Mississauga Lakeshore. I don't know the specifics of that one, but it might be $100,000 in a in a federal election campaign that you could spend there. If you look down at uh, that race that just finished in Georgia, the runoff, the second version of the election, I think that the winning candidate spent something like $54 million uh, on TV ads alone for that one month runoff. Um, just massive, massive differences in the amount of money that can be spent. So if you can't raise it from corporate or wealthy donors in the sense of there's a limit to what people can give, and if you can't spend it in the large gobs that it gets spent in the U.S., that conditions our system to work on a different uh, to work on a different basis, uh, and we're we're better off for it for sure. Um, you know, I do think that there are times when I I wish that more people were paying more attention to politics, but I don't think adding uh, billions of dollars of uh, untraceable spending is is a good way to go to make that happen. 
Um, before we go, I'd also like to say something about uh, somebody we lost in the last couple of days. You know, a, a few weeks ago, I was in Winnipeg uh, helping um, uh, host a, or not host, but helping um, speak at a, a celebration of Lloyd Axworthy's political life um, and his uh, private life as president of the University of Winnipeg. And um, there were a lot of people in that room that night you know you know i I can't remember six seven hundred at least who who gathered there and they were from all parties uh one of the things about uh, manitoba um and you know you see it reflected occasionally in different parts of the country but it was very evident that night where partisan differences had no part of the play of that night people came together uh to celebrate something they all agreed on needed celebrating and one of the people there that night was um, it was a liberal, former um, uh, cabinet minister uh, for Justin Trudeau, uh, Jim Carr, um, who'd been battling uh, or had been battling cancer for the last few years. Well, he passed away on the, on the weekend, and um, this was a, a, a fellow I know you you knew him as well, who had a, a lot of respect from all sides of the house. Um, good guy, Jim Carr, hardworking, had the energy file for uh, for a while, so you would have uh, bumped into him more than a few times, I'm sure, uh, on that. But, um, you know, when you lose uh, someone who's dedicated their a good chunk of their life to public service, and in this case through uh, through election, um, and and is regarded that way, you know, I think we uh, we should all pause for a moment because our country works because of of people like that. And uh, it was it was sad to soon see him lose that battle. I talked to him uh, for five or ten minutes that night. He had you know similar concerns that I have on certain areas uh, that are happening in the country. And uh, and and right to the end, he was working at it. Yeah, yeah, I did get to know him a little bit, and. Uh... You know, I, I do talk to people about getting into politics, and I often say to them one of the things to be aware of is that, you know, your life changes from the day before you get into politics to the day after. You you go from being, in many cases, a respected member of the community uh, before you get into politics, and then you get in and you become, a, a you know, a kind of a target of derision and criticism and suspicion that your motives are not very good. and. And Jim Carr was one of those rare individuals who, for whom that didn't really happen, uh, that a lot of people maintained a sense of, oh, this is a good human being. And that's true across the aisle. And, and one of the things that I've always found is that, you know, politicians meet a lot of people and they have a lot of meals with people and they don't, you know, so they sometimes can be in message mode, even if they don't want to. But you learn a little bit about people by the stories that they tell you when you are having a casual or relaxed conversation. And I remember very well having dinner one night with, with Jim Carr and uh, we talked about a lot of things. I think we probably chatted for a couple of hours, but I remember how, how enthusiastic he was telling me that his idea of a great day, and this was in Ottawa was that he would get up and he would, you know, he would uh, be thinking about what he was going to do that day as the Minister of Natural Resources, I think he was at the time. But before he left his apartment, he would load up his slow cooker with the things that he wanted to eat that night. <laughs> and he would turn it on 
And then he would kind of go through his day thinking about how good that meal was going to taste when he got back uh, to his apartment uh, later that night. And I thought, uh, for some reason, I've always remembered that story because it was just a very real story about somebody who was, you know, going to work and doing this really important thing. But he was a very regular human being who, you know, loved food and uh, and uh, loved to tell stories like that. Yeah, I think we sometimes forget uh, that the uh, the women and men who uh, serve politically, and we may have our our beasts with them, and they may have their beasts with uh, each other. But at their heart, they're you know they <laughs> they are literally just like us in many ways. And uh, that's a great little story. Love that one. We'll miss Jim Carr. All right, Bruce. Thank you uh, so much for this. We'll Bruce will be back on Friday, of course, for good talk. Our year ender edition. Uh, with Chantel. We're looking forward to that one. Tomorrow it's uh, your turn. So file your notes, uh, your comments, whatever they may be. Get them in fast now um, at the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and the Random Ranter will be here tomorrow. That'll be Peter, have we asked uh, listeners and uh, viewers, I guess, if they want to send questions for uh, our conversation with Chantel on Friday as well? Have you no, done that? Maybe I missed no, that. No, did no, we, that? we haven't asked that. We're not going to do that. Well, now we did. <laughs> if you have a comment or a question for Bruce and Chantel, we'll try and squeeze it in there. Um, there we go. There you go. Just like nice. that. Same address, the Podcast gmail.com. Um, thank you, big guy. We'll uh, have fun in Vancouver. You bet. Go for yeah. a swim in the in the ocean. You know, it's warm out there. Yeah, it looks a little cold right now. But <laughs> I'll look at it. Okay. Take care. Take Thanks care. for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you again in twenty four hours. Mm-hmm.